This morning we get a little taste of why Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, and for a good portion of it, he's crying. If you look up the word Jeremiah in the dictionary, you'll find Jeremiah, noun, lengthy complaint, (laughs) a long recitation of mournful complaints. It's a definition that might make you think twice about reading this prophet. It isn't that Jeremiah doesn't have a good reason to weep. The country of Judah and its holy city of Jerusalem depend on the protection of their God and their king, and neither has come through to save them from the invading Babylonian empire. They waited, but it didn't do any good. The harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. Good reason or not, all this weeping and lamenting make many people uncomfortable. Bill Hybels tells a fable about a boy named Johnny to describe our culture's standard approach to grieving. Johnny is five years old when his dog dies. He bursts out crying. His dog has been his companion. It slept at the foot of his bed. Now the dog is gone. Johnny's dad stammers a bit and says, "Uh, don't feel bad, Johnny, we'll get you a new dog. It's lesson one in society's grief management program. Bury your feelings, replace your losses. Once you have a new dog, you won't think about the old one anymore. Years later, Johnny falls in love with a high school classmate. He's riding on a cloud until she dumps him. Johnny's heart is broken. He can barely breathe. But Mom comes to the rescue. Don't feel bad, Johnny. There are other fish in the sea. Lesson two is the same as lesson one. Bury the pain. Replace the loss. Still later, someone slips John a note in math class. The note says that his grandfather has just died. This was the one who took him fishing every summer, the one who listened to him better than anyone he knew. He reads the note and breaks into sobs, and the teacher sends him to the office. His dad picks him up from school, and at home his mother is weeping. John wants to give her a hug, but his dad says, don't disturb her, John, she needs to be alone. She'll be all right after a while. Lesson three, grieve alone. So let's review. Bury your feelings, replace your loss, grieve alone. Let time heal, live with regret, never trust again. That has been society's approach to grief for years. And if you kids are still in the congregation, I hope it was perfectly clear from Diana that these are not good lessons. A few weeks ago, I was part of a conversation about grief here in our church. A man told this story, and I asked if I could use it. He not only said yes, but he encouraged me because he thought it might help others. This man had least recently lost his wife. When he was growing up, his father told him under no uncertain terms that boys don't cry, that men don't cry. 
that crying was a sign of weakness. And so for five months after his wife's death, he hadn't shed a tear. One Sunday he came into the office to get away from the cheerful coffee hour chatter, and our associate pastor Diana saw him sitting alone. She put her hand on his shoulder and asked him how he was doing. And then the tears came, finally and freely. He said it felt like a warm shower. The tears were healing. He felt better than he could ever have imagined. He felt new. Grief is healing. People who have suffered a loss often think of grief as something bad that they have to hide or get over quickly. But in fact, grief is something good. I learned long ago that the only way to the other side of grief is to go through it. You can't skip it. You can't go around it. Because grief is the process of healing from a loss. And research backs me up on this. Helen Fitzgerald, the author of The Morning Handbook, tells us that people who try to ignore the powerful, deep-seated emotions of grief usually see them reappear later in disturbing forms. Physical responses such as rheumatoid arthritis, stomach ulcers, colitis, and then she goes on with a long list, maybe 10 more physical maladies. Then she starts describing the psychological responses, depression, fits of unexplained anger, and that list goes on and on too. She concludes with, there are no more powerful feelings than those arriving from grief, arising from grief. Ignore them at your peril. And crying in particular is good for us. It reduces stress, it lowers our blood pressure, and it removes toxins from our bodies. Anne Lamott gives a great description of the way grief heals in her book, Traveling Mercies. Her beloved friend Pammy died of cancer about the same time that an important relationship of Anne Lamott's ended. Lamott took off to Mexico to recover. She writes, grief is like a lazy Susan. One day it is heavy and underwater, and the next day it spins and stops at loud and rageful, and the next day, numbness and silence. I was hoarse for the first six weeks after Pammy died and my romance ended from shouting in the car and crying. But on the first morning in Mexico, the lazy Susan stopped at feelings of homesickness, like when my parents sold the house where I grew up. And this is God's own truth, she writes. The more often I cried in my room in Ixtapa and felt just generally wretched, the more I started to have occasional moments of utter joy, of feeling aware of each moment for its own momentous sake. I am no longer convinced that you're supposed to get over the death of certain people, but little by little, pale and swollen around the eyes, I began to feel a sense of reception, that I was beginning to receive the fact of Pammy's death, the finality. I let it enter me. Lamont, too, describes grief as a shower, washing off some rust and calcification in her pipes. Don't get me wrong, she writes. Grief sucks. It really does. You begin to cry and writhe and yell and then to keep on crying and then finally 
the grief ends up giving you the two best things, softness and illumination. Softness and illumination. This is where grief moves beyond personal health and happiness into something bigger. Jeremiah asks, is there a bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician here? Isn't there something that can heal these people? Isn't there something that can heal us? Maybe, just maybe, it is grief itself. Maybe it is tears. Philip Newell, who was the speaker during my week at Iona, tells how in the 6th century on Iona, one of the rules St. Columba gave his monastic community was to pray until thy tears come. When tears flow, Newell says, something very deep within us is stirring. When we see through tears, we see differently. When we weep, we see that the hard edges of life have become blurred. Even though brokenness may have caused our tears, when we weep, we are close to life's oneness. When Jeremiah weeps on behalf of the people of God, he is seeing things differently. For starters, our tears tell us that something is wrong, which means something should change. His weeping and his grief break through the numbness that would keep people from seeing that the choices that they've made led to the situation in which they find themselves. His tears bring him closer to God, to God's hopes and God's grief. One of the most interesting aspects of the original Hebrew of this passage is that it's impossible to distinguish who is speaking at what time. In the English translation in our Bibles, God's words are put in parentheses. But these parentheses are not in the Hebrew text. The pain and the suffering of God and the prophet and the people are identical. Their mingled voices create a kind of harmony of lament. Jeremiah's grief is a window into the broken heart of God who weeps for Jerusalem and for God's people who have messed up once again. Our grief gives us that same window. If you've ever grieved a loss, it's likely that the people who were most helpful to you were the people who had been through some kind of grief themselves. Carl Jung says that only the wounded physician heals. And here's where this has implications for the wounds and brokenness of our world. Philip Newell writes, Only to the extent that we are in touch with our own brokenness, both individually and collectively, will we be a strong presence of healing for others. Only to the extent that we know that the wounds we treat in others are part of our own woundedness, will we experience the oneness of healing. Only to the extent that we remember that what we do to others is what we do to ourselves, will we together be well again. 
like Jeremiah, we need to grieve, to break through our numbness and denial and look into the window of God's broken heart in order to transform the world because what we'll see in God's heart is what is broken about us. And what is broken about us is what is broken about others. And there is where we will find the bomb in Gilead. In 2006, Charles Carl Roberts barricaded himself inside the West Nickel Mines Amish School in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. After killing five students and wounding six others, he killed himself. It was a dark day for the Amish community and for Marie Roberts, the wife of the gunman, and her two young children. On the following Saturday, Marie went to her husband's funeral. She and her children watched in amazement as Amish families, about half of the 75 mourners present, came and stood alongside them in the midst of their blinding grief. In spite of their own loss, the Amish came to mourn Charles Carl Roberts as a husband and father. Their tears were not just for themselves, but for all who were grieving, all who were wounded. This past week, our nation experienced another mass shooting. The extent to which we have become numb to these events frightens me. It depends on how you define mass shooting, but according to the FBI definition, a mass shooting has occurred in the United States at the rate of about one every two weeks since 2006. What we are doing to stop this insanity is not working. On NPR this week, a commentator said that the accusations and recriminations and protests just further polarize people on the opposing sides. He said the National Rifle Association relishes any opportunity to say, see, they're trying to take our guns away because that means they'll get more donations. Maybe what we need to do is grieve, lament, cry, Weep for the victims, certainly, and for their families, but also, like the Amish in Nickel Mines, for the shooters, who are always tortured souls, and for their families, and for those whose fear and anger, and perhaps greed, make any real conversation about solutions impossible, and for those who want to stop these deaths, but feel as though they keep hitting a wall of denial. And for our nation, which is so lost, so lost when it comes to this issue, Jeremiah's grief broke through the wall of denial and gave us a window into the broken heart of God. Surely if there is any situation that calls for our tears, it is this one. We need to look into the broken heart of God and see what is broken in all of us? We have to feel the pain of this enough to grieve, enough to see that something is wrong, and enough to move to something new. I don't know where it will take us, 
I don't know what solution will arise. It may look something like the project that's described in the peacemaking inserts in your bulletin. It may be something surprising. I only know we have to start there. I believe if we can cry together, our situation will change. Only to the extent that we remember that what we do to others is what we do to ourselves. Will we together be well again? Only then is there a bomb in Gilead. In the resurrection story in John's Gospel, the risen Jesus shows the disciples the marks of crucifixion in his hands and in his side. The resurrection story is not about wounds being undone. It is not about suffering smoothed over or denied. The wounds are deeply visible. They are part of a new beginning. They are an inseparable part of a new beginning. During the conversation about grief here at the church that I mentioned earlier, another person said that the church is the place where we know that everyone has wounds. Everyone. The person sitting next to you. The person who disagrees with you. The person who hurts you. The church is where we know that everyone has wounds and that it's okay. We're different from the Yacht Club, she said which is not to say that the yacht club or the PTA or the gym or the book club are filled with callous people, just that it isn't their role, their purpose, to notice the wounds and weep for the suffering so that it can become a part of a new beginning, so that it can be transformed, so that it is redeemed into opportunities to alleviate the suffering of others opportunities to be a bomb in Gilead. There is a bomb in Gilead. May it be so for you and for me.